Female artists do not get the same level of support. The female artists that I know of have reinvented themselves 20 times more than the male artists. There's a poor representation of all different types of women in music. Seek out strong women to align yourself with. We have to accept that there is a certain level of social responsibility that we do have for each other. And the sooner we recognize that, the sooner the music industry can change. Hi, Chelsea Wilson here. This is Control, the podcast where we speak to incredibly inspiring women in the music industry in control of their careers. Each episode, we feature a pioneer in the industry. And when it comes to pioneers in Australian music, Vicky Gordon springs to mind. An award-winning creative producer and cultural specialist across music, music theatre, events and documentaries, Vicky has received a Human Rights Award commendation for her contribution to the industry and was also recognised by the Australian Financial Review in the Top 100 Women of Influence in 2019. She was the co-producer of award-winning rock musical Barbara and the Camp Dogs, produced the first Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Women's Contemporary Music Festival with Open Eyes, established the first all-girl rock festival Fast Forward and the first training program for female DJs. Vicky was also the first woman voted onto the ARIA board. She has worked with artists such as Vanessa Amorossi and Emma Donovan and also produced the critically acclaimed Barefoot Divas. She is currently founding president for the non-profit charity Cicada International and the executive director and executive producer for the Australian Women in Music Awards. In this conversation, I asked Vicky about women in senior leadership, how we can influence change in the Australian music industry, how to avoid burnout, her thoughts on confidence and body image, and so much more. This is Vicky Gordon in Control. I can hear the storm and I can feel the rain. Vicky Gordon, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks, Chelsea. I'd firstly love to go back to the 90s part of your career. You've had such a broad and varied career and it was really hard to kind of narrow down on what to talk to you about because there was just so many things I wanted to touch on. But I did really want to talk about your time with Transistor Music. You were founding director and then director of A&R and marketing. A&R has just been such a male-dominated space for decades. So to kind of be in A&R in the 90s, you know, is, is pretty amazing. I know you signed Vanessa Amorossi and worked on her debut album, The Power. That was a huge album. It was one of my brother's favorite albums. And I heard it so much um, as a teenager blaring from his room while he was absolutely everybody, the top of his lungs from the hallway. Mm. Um, what was it like working on that record for you? Did you know it was going to be such a huge success? Oh, look, uh, you can't really predict success at all, but what we did know and what I certainly was very clear about was the talent of Vanessa Amorosi and her extraordinary creativity, her remarkable voice and just her her talent um, at such a young age was just unprecedented, I think, in this country. Transistor Music was an independent record label, so we didn't have the big budgets that the majors did. And we were working on very minimal budgets, but we were so committed to doing the best we could for Vanessa. Um, and obviously the songs and the production and everything that went along with with that album and and all of her singles, actually, from, from that album, um, 
was just testament, I think, to to her, but also to the team that was Transistor Music at the time. It was such an incredible record and her voice was and still is just so distinct. The first time I saw her live, the tour was Vanessa Amorossi, Vicar and Linda and Kate Sobrano. And, you know, as a teenager, it was just incredible to see this lineup of women um, all performing their own music and, and different kind of covers. And Vanessa's voice was just so incredible. But I remember specifically the Power album, um, the cover art. I think Pierre Baroni took that picture. Um, and she's standing on the cover with the boxing gloves and, you know, quite a baggy kind of top. And it sort of makes me think now it's sort of what Billie Eilish is doing now, but Vanessa Marossi was doing it, you know, over 20 years ago. Mm. Um, and there were so many really sexualized releases in the 90s, but this was really, really different. Was that something that Vanessa really wanted to do and how she wanted to present herself? Oh, you know, Vanessa was is was and is so unique in so many ways. And um, I guess as as a record, as an independent record label executive, and also as a feminist, my politics have always informed how I work in the music business, and in particular in relation to my commitment to the artists that I've represented, and both as a, as a label um, executive and as an artist manager. So I was very committed to ensuring that Vanessa was supported to be as authentic as possible. And it was really important to me and to Vanessa not to impose any manipulated, um, sexualized imaging on her at that time. Um, and these were decisions that were very deliberate in terms of her marketing and in terms of supporting her to be as true to herself as she possibly could be, which was unusual, an unusual stand for mm. a label to take with an artist. But as time has gone on and, and um, you know, if I look back on the success of Vanessa, um, I think that uh, it, it was her uncompromised uniqueness and individuality that in some ways really helped to build her profile and influence her success. But I also emphasise uh, the power of putting creative control into the hands of artists themselves. And that's a very, very important thing that I think um, Vanessa was ahead of her time um, in demanding that she be herself. You know, but artists are always ahead of their time. That That's what artists are. Um, I think that traditionally, you know, the larger labels have always tried to squeeze them back, squeeze artists back into being what they're not. You know, I've seen this happen for many, many, many years and heard many mm. artists talk about how destructive that can actually be. So um, I, I, I always empower the artists, I say. I mean, she must have been so young at the time. She was a teenager. Yeah, she was 15 when, when we signed her. She was 15 and, and it's really important to remember that, you know, because she was just so young and um, and her talent was just extraordinary. And, and uh, you know, she's gone on to do incredible things and, and ironically now is back working independently, which is fantastic. So good. So she really kind of broke through, you know, in that pre- internet era pre-social media I think social media has just had such a huge role now in breaking an artist and in artist marketing and this whole idea of an artist as a brand which I feel like we didn't really refer to artists as brands beforehand but now it's all your brand and your language and your image and it's created a kind of I guess a new pressure on artists not just to constantly posting about everything online which is just a huge additional demand on an already really busy workload but now there's 
there's other kind of additional pressures around body image. I mean, do you think it's exacerbated an existing expectation that women should look a certain way or do you think there was always pressure on on female artists in terms of body image? I think there's always been pressure on female artists in terms of body image and I'd also say that I think there's been a double standard in the music industry for as long as I've been in the industry uh, for both for men and women. But what I do feel confident about is that I think that a lot of younger women these days are really on top of this. I know that the pressures are very real, but I think a lot of women are, are really getting on top of all of this. What I would say to younger women is, is to resist this impulse to be the same. You know, to what is going to make what is going to make um, artists stand out from the crowd when they're young. Um, and the thing that maybe they get questioned about or the, the things that perhaps are teased about is very likely to be the thing that is actually going to be their point of difference that will actually be their success. So I think it's very important, I reiterate this and I've maintained this in my whole career, to encourage young women to be profoundly original and, and true to themselves. Yeah, I love that. I mean, there's stories, you know, and professional actors or musicians who mentioned that point around the point of difference or the thing they were bullied for. I think Julia Roberts was always bullied at school for her lips or that she had fish lips or something. And, you know, when you think of Julia Roberts, you just think of that amazing, beautiful smile, you know. I think that's such an important point to remember is that individuality and often the singers that really make it or any artist of, you know, regardless of instrument, but particularly singers is that unique vocal quality that's just your own. You know, you think of Macy Gray or Tina Arena or, you know, Celine Dion. I mean, their voices are so them, you know, there's only one Nora Jones, you know, her voice, it's Nora Jones, you know, so it, that's a real strength. And I feel like somehow with social media, the imagery can become quite homogenized and everybody's going for this very similar look and I think that's what was so refreshing about Billie Eilish and I felt the same about Vanessa Amorossi so I, I think she really was such a, a pioneer and, and the work that you did with her was ahead of its time and still stands so strong. I really would love to chat to you about senior leadership and being a senior leader in the Australian music industry. There's so many women who work in arts administration, but finding women, you know, at the CEO level, you know, can be really hard. I think in Australia, 17% of CEOs are female. So we've still got a long way to go. Um, you were the first female ARIA board director. And after your term, I think there was a 19 year gap or something until there was another woman on the board. What was your experience like on the board and, and why do you think it took so long? There was one woman prior to me. I'm not sure what year she she was on the board, but I was was the first woman voted onto the area board as a director in my own right. Right. In 2002 and I was there representing the independents. So it was it was um, you know, it was an amazing achievement and and, a, and an extraordinary opportunity. Um at that time, women were simply not a priority for the ARIA board. And the music industry at that time, of course, as you will recall, was called a boys club for very good reason. Um, and, and this is evident in, in terms of how long it's taken for other women to join the ARIA board. Um, the culture of ARIA was such that you actually couldn't be a board director unless you ran a record label. And of course, no women or very few women other than perhaps FIFA Riccobona from Albert's were running record labels. So the change we saw on the ARIA board in 2019 
was, I believe, a direct result of the Skipping a Beat research report that we initiated. Mm -hmm. And obviously, all of the other great, great work that's been done by Ange McCormack and the Hack, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Um, really, I think it was it was that research and it was then obviously the emergence of the Australian Women in Music Awards, which really shamed Aria into finally acting. <laughs> whatever works, whatever works. If it's whatever, whatever. <laughs> whatever works. <laughs> and and it's funny, isn't it? Because now they're saying, look, we've changed and, you know, we've ticked that box. But, I mean, really, how naive do they think that we women are? You know, do they think we don't know and can recognise an organisation that only changes when it's when it's forced to? And um, do they think we don't know and, and recognise that unless there is real will and real commitment and real understanding that women have a right to half of the resources you know, nothing really is going to change until that occurs. Yeah, I completely agree. It's just a kind of virtue signaling action to go, oh, okay, it's made very clear that we have no women. We'll just chuck some women on. Cool. Tick, tick, job done. What's it going to take to have a look at the broader context and think about what kind of cultural changes need to happen? So, the issue is women aren't running labels, women aren't owning labels. So what can we do about that? You know, do you think, is there conversations at that ARIA level about how to support that to happen? I mean, why do you think women aren't owning and running record labels? Well, you know, I think we can no longer call out, um, well, the industry can no longer call out inequality with words and aspirations. It's up to all of us, those of us that are in pri privileged positions of power, to lead with action and conviction. And that's really that's a really big thing that's missing in our industry is action and conviction. And what do you think we need to change before we can see more women in CEO roles? Well, I think women need to be more strategic and determined. And I also think they, they also need to gather around themselves great artists and, and other people who support them. I think that's really, really important. Um, and I think that this new generation of, of women coming through the industry need to keep up the pressure and refuse to tolerate uh, what has been a mono-male music culture for such a long time. I really loved that skipping the beat research that report i have found so incredibly useful over the last few years i have quoted that research in so many proposals and i have put it forward to other people in workplaces and so you know a huge thank you to you and everybody behind putting that together and you know having that data and statistics does make such a difference and we can see the results right there that by doing the research and putting forward a proposal and, and putting forward those statistics right there in front of us that it can inspire and, and really make change. Um, another survey that came out is the Music Victoria Women in Music survey from a few years ago. Um, and, and this one kind of highlighted confidence as an issue for women. And confidence seems to be something that is a recurring theme and is apparently holding women back from full participation in the music industry. Do you think that this is a genuine thing that there's women have a lack of confidence or do you think confidence is kind of the scapegoat and what we're blaming for the gender imbalance? The idea of confidence and, of course, this issue of self-esteem is something that I've been talking about for years and self-esteem is something that really impacts on all of us, but especially women. 
and and obviously you know over the years i've learned that self-esteem and confidence is everything um when it comes to um move, being able to move yourself forward in your own life and lacking it can cripple your your capacity to make positive choices and inform decisions with a sense of purpose which is really really important in the music industry but in terms of senior positions and um, decision making positions women can lack confidence because they need to be given opportunity to learn how to be bold and strategic to be backed in when they make mistakes or have failures and to learn how to turn that around to succeed. And without being given those opportunities, which men are forever being given, women are always going to be held back. And I think that sometimes women make, you know, can make a mistake or an error that will haunt them for far too long. I think this is something that as women we 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 punish ourselves and we often you know flagellate ourselves but I think even more than confidence I think what women need in the music music industry more than confidence is resilience and courage such a good point I think yeah learning to kind of process failures and then just move on to the next thing you know and have that resilience is you know such an important skill how can we develop that skill how do you think we can build up our kind of confidence and belief in ourselves I you know it's it's a complex quick question because we're all so different and we all have we've all come from such different places our life experiences are all so very different um but you know if, and every day every day particularly now every day for so many of us is such a struggle uh, but we have to find something in our hearts and in ourselves to continue to believe in ourselves, you know. And um, like I said, I think that women really do need to find ways to maintain support for one another. I, th I say this a lot. I, I think that women underestimate the amount of confidence and strength they can give to one another. And I, I think we need to see far, far more of that in our industry. I think so too. And I think it's starting to happen. I feel like more and more the awards, the film, Her Sound, Her Story, you know, has just been really helpful for opening that conversation that I think some women weren't having or felt that they couldn't have. Throughout your career, you've been such a pioneer and advocate for women in the music industry, creating new programs, working with artists, the awards, championing First Nation artists. I mean, it's huge. Can you... Tell me what some of your career highlights have been. Oh, uh, well, when I established the Australian Women's Rock Institute in the early 90s, I produced Australia's first Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Women's Contemporary Music Festival. And that was that was extraordinary. Wow. And that, that involved artists such as the late Ruby Hunter and uh, Leah Purcell, Christine Arnu the Mill Sisters and the Pearl Sisters from Amazing. Broome. And it was incredible. You know, that was 19, uh, I think, 94, actually. Um, and I also produced and created the first training program for female DJs, which I was really, really proud of, too. That was way, way ahead of um, any conversations, really, about women working in technical or production areas. A, a lot of the work that I've done that I'm really proud of does involve First Nations. I, myself, am New Zealand Maori, so I have deep connections to my own culture. Um, but the other projects have really been to do with some of the music theatre work that I've done, such as Barefoot Divas, which was um, six First Nations women from uh, Australia, New Zealand and PNG, um, and touring that uh, group of women to North America 
and selling out the Hong Kong Concert Hall in 2015 and doing that independently. But the beautiful thing about Barefoot Divas was that these were six First Nations women singing six-part harmonies in each other's languages. Just got goosebumps. So good. Yeah, the show was called Walk a Mile in My Shoes and was written by Alana Valentine, and and it was absolutely extraordinary. It was groundbreaking at the time, just in terms of putting all of those cultures and that that beauty, that musical um, extraordinariness together. Of course, Vanessa Amorosi is, uh, you know, working with her really early on was an amazing um, opportunity and a gift. But the other project that I'm really proud of is a First Nations rock musical uh, called Barbara and the Camp Dogs with the extraordinary Ursula Jovic and um, again written by Alana and Ursula. But that project, we picked up uh, four Green Room Awards and four Helpman Awards last year, including Best Musical. So that's been a really, really fabulous and extraordinary journey uh, because uh, that story or that production was a commitment to not only putting women's stories on stage, not only putting First Nations women's stories on stage with an all-girl rock band, but basically empowering women um, to the main stage. And the success that that project has had to date has been been really extraordinary. Um, And, of course, Australian Women in Music Awards, trying to keep the industry accountable, (laughs) you know, um, and that's... um, an ongoing commitment and struggle. Did you pause and celebrate these career moments? I mean, I know in the music industry, we're often just going from one project to the next, you know, and same in the arts. It's this, it's this tour, it's this production. We're now in pre-production. Did you take time (laughs) to take stock or is it just one thing to the next? Well, interestingly with COVID, I've now, with, with this COVID world that we're now living in, I've been forced to stop for the first time in my career, actually. And that's been really amazing and very positive for me because I've just been working like a warrior for years. Um, But what I would say is that the best reward from all of the things that I've done and all of the work that I've done has been that I've retained the friendships and the relationships with a lot of these women in particular and a lot of these artists that I've worked with over the years um, through the Women's Rock Institute, you know, through through all of the projects that we've just talked about. And I've often, I often find myself in various places. I, I'm, I'm often contacted by younger women that I've worked with and, and they stay in touch with me. And, the, you know, often when they're rising through the ranks, I can, I can see the influences of certain things that, of some of the work that I've done. And a friend of mine has actually called them uh, my secret female army of influence, which is really <laughs> wonderful to get to a point in your life where you do have so many committed uh, women supporting you. It's very humbling. I really have believed in the long game in my career, and I've played the long game my entire career. Um, and I think that's been a real asset. It's enabled me to work with integrity and loyalty. And and that is a much better legacy to have than anything else I could imagine. I love that. Integrity and loyalty. Let's just put that up on the mantelpiece. <laughs> I think the billboards. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. such sounds so basic. It um, and it is, but it's yeah. You know, if if only we were seeing more of that, you know, on a kind of worldwide level, you know, I think we'd be in a, in a bit of a different situation. Yes. I mean, in terms of the, the COVID isolation experience, it's kind of been this handbrake, you know, and a sort of forced 
um, a lot of us to kind of have this break that, that we haven't had. Have you learned something about yourself, reflections or things that have made you contemplate the next steps? I've spent a lot of my career doing a lot of work in Arnhem Land and um, working in the Northern Territory with my First Nations brothers and sisters. And the one thing I've learned from that work um, has been the importance of sitting still and actually just taking time to reflect on your life and your relationships and your family and your achievements and all those things in life that are important. And in some ways, I think that's, you know, for many of us, been the lesson of COVID too, that we've been forced to stop, to listen to the birds, to go for Mm. walks if we're able, if we're not in lockdown in Melbourne, you know, I mean, if we're able to, I've reconnected really strongly with nature and I love, I love the bush and I love this Australian country, you know, I love birds and I love cooking and I, so I'm doing all those sorts of things that, you know, bring me joy. Um, But, and most importantly, I think those, those lessons are lessons I've been learning and continue to learn like I said, from my First Nations relationships, but also I think that's been a gift. What do you think some of the biggest challenges of your career have been? The biggest challenges in my career are the people who think that change happens because society somehow just holds hands and agrees that change is necessary. Change only happens when individuals rally the communities behind them and fight and work for that change. The biggest challenges are the people who believe that talent will out and women who are good at their job will get through, that success is based on merit and social advocacy is not necessary. Change doesn't just roll out on the wheels of inevitability and and it comes through continuous struggle. People who believe that change is inevitable, I don't believe have ever worked for change. Otherwise, they would not come with that position. They don't know that change always threatens those in power and those people often work to stop it. They don't know that people in power will select individuals to promote so they can point to them as change when they really are just exceptions. And I think one of the biggest disappointments of my career is the women who say there is no systemic sexism, the people who say there is no systemic racism, and the people who say that there is no real barrier if you have the talent. That's just not true. It never was and it still isn't. Absolutely. This whole idea that change just happens and it's just a cart that's going to wheel into town and it's just all merry is so incorrect. There's a book by Helen Lewis um, where she talks about, I think it's 11 feminist fights, something like that. And it really goes into detail around the suffragettes and how they were considered terrorists and how they literally went and bombed things and blew things up. And now we kind of go, oh, of course, you know, women have the right to vote. I mean, of of course, that's just a no-brainer. But, you know, 100 and whatever years ago, this was something where change only happened when there was real action happening. Which brings me to chatting to you about the Australian Women in Music Awards. This was such a, I mean, interesting time when the awards were launched. So many other music award programs, such as the Grammys, and I think even the NZ Music Awards removed the best female or best male award categories with this idea around, you know, removing categories that are gender specific to create a more inclusive industry in terms of gender. What are your thoughts on that? And how did you respond to the criticism around the establishment of the awards? 
Well, I, th I think that people who say that, that they believe removing the gender-based awards creates a more gender-inclusive industry are telling themselves that there's a level playing field in the industry now. They want to believe it, so they say, let's abolish the Best Female or Male Awards and make it just about the Best Musician. And you know, and I know, that that is just incredibly naive. I don't think we are in that world, no matter how much we would like to believe that we are. If we just go back to the research, the skipping a beat research, and we just look at the research papers, uh, there's very few of them, actually, because the area of women working in contemporary music is one of the least researched areas of the arts. But the research and the statistics that we do have is what we need to keep focusing on. In relation to the Grammys, the Grammys are more genre-specific than the Ormas, um, and they are extremely well-funded. Um, the Grammys are also very proactive in their advocacy to support black music, Filipino music and trans music, for example. Um, there are individual executives on the Grammy uh, board and Grammy committee who are specifically dedicated to diversity and inclusion, to people and to culture. And we've simply not seen that level of leadership or activism in the Australian music industry. And in fact, just last week, we watched the ARIA Awards called out again by Sampa the Great for their lack of inclusivity. And as I was saying earlier, you only need to research the stats from the Skipping a Beat report. And again, the great work by Ange McCormack and Triple J's The Hack to see how much work that we actually have to do. So that's what I think on a philosophical level. And on a practical level, I just think, well, are you kidding? Why would you give out one award when you can give out two? So did you deal with negative feedback or criticism around the establishment of the awards? How did you deal with that? Um, yes, of course. Um, and that's inevitable when you're creating change. Criticism is part of the territory and you have to suit up for it. But what's worse than the negative feedback and the criticism, I think, is the indifference of some of the major players. I have never had the kind of funding that could really assist us to make the Women's Awards create real change. If it wasn't for the massively female-led Queensland government, we wouldn't even have the Ormas. The New South Wales government, the industry bodies, all of the people who could have assisted me, they don't criticise you publicly, they just don't support you with money or presence, and they wait for you to fail and fade from lack of attention. What they have underestimated, though, is the huge grassroots community support that the Women's Awards has and continues to mobilise. And the best answer to criticism is to defy the odds and, and keep going. And also, to, to keep an, I need to keep an open mind. It's very important that we all keep an open mind because if those industry bodies suddenly want to jump on board with funding and help support the OMAs, that would be really great. I've got a very short-term memory. <laughs> yeah, I want to say a huge thank you and, you know, congratulations on establishing the awards. You know, I think it's incredibly important. And, you know, people feel very funny, I think, or conflicted about awards in general, but you know, I just kind of think that any sort of attention we can shine on, you know, the incredible people making music or behind the scenes is helpful to our music culture overall. And consumers pay attention to this. You know, when people are at the wine store, they see the wine with the gold stickers on the front, you know, or in a bookstore, they see 
you know, oh, bestsellers list, or this was in Oprah's book club, you know, those things make a difference. So to be nominated for an award, to be have your work acknowledged by industry is potentially life-changing and can make huge career impacts for the women nominated. And this is the kind of acknowledgement that they're not getting elsewhere. So I, I can only see it as an incredibly positive and uplifting awards program. I think it's important to say that that the Women's Awards really makes visible. Um, our commitment is to make visible the achievements and excellence of women working across all areas of industry. And it's very, very important that we acknowledge and respect and value the contributions of women. Um, that is really the main reason and 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 um, purpose for the Ormas to exist. And um, and and this and this obviously includes. We're not just talking about singer songwriters. We're talking about producers and engineers and tour managers and roadies, educators, classical artists and photographers, filmmakers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And of course, one of the the things that I'm very very passionate about is our commitment to commemorate our elders and to remember and commemorate those women that have come before us to make sure that their contributions are acknowledged and that their value is also celebrated. Yeah, I think that's so important. I mean, so often stories are forgotten and, you know, we just move on to the next thing. I was really happy that there was a Helen Reddy movie made, an incredible legacy, you know, um, an incredible contribution to music. But there's so many other artists like Kerry Bedell who you know, it was just really forgotten. And when she passed away a few years ago and there was this tiny, you know, tiny thing in the paper and I thought this was a woman who contributed so much to jazz in Australia and, you know, had this huge moment, you know, they weren't called Arias then, they were called something else, but she won a couple of them and she had a huge Vegas residency and completely unknown. Um, And same with Wilma Redding. So I'm so glad that, you know, there's acknowledgement there for Wilma and for Georgia Lee and for, you know, these incredible pioneers who really paved the way. Um, And speaking about, you know, really important Australian musicians, Tina Arena, she called out commercial radio in her Aria Hall of Fame acceptance speech a few years ago. I don't know if you caught that, but she talked about it at Big Sound as well in her keynote about how Paul Kelly and other male artists can get older and still get booked and still get this acknowledgement. And they're kind of the older you get, the more revered you get, you know, like Nick Cave, what a genius, Leonard Cohen, what a genius. I'm not saying they're not a genius, but we're not talking about Kylie or we're not talking about J-Lo or, you know, in that sort of same light. And, you know, they're around the same age, but they don't get that sort of similar acknowledgement for their art, more the conversation is around how they look. Tina Arena called out, you know, commercial radio for not playing women, you know, over 40 years of age on air. I mean, do you think the Australian music industry has an issue with with ageism that is disadvantaging women? Oh, yes, it's a huge issue. And, I mean, I can't tell you how many women I've worked with and even young women who um, are afraid that they will not have a career past the age of 23. You know, they're, they're afraid of that. And that, that is not even a question that, that, that male artists ever even have to consider. Um, but, I, but in truth, I, I don't think this is limited to women in, in the music industry. Um, and dare I say it, 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 it it's, a, it's a major issue for women across all areas of the arts. And I, I think Australia just really needs to grow up and have pride in its established artists and, you know, mature like a good Australian wine. I mean, speaking of, of radio, I mean, there's been a lot of conversations, you know, around Australian radio quotas. I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? Do you think quotas are a good idea? 
I think quotas are a great idea. They become necessary when things don't shift the way in the way that they should. I think the extraordinary amount of talent in this country um, in the arts is astounding. And I think that what the quotas can do is basically just ensure that we're hearing more Australian artists and that we're developing more local talent and that we are holding that talent up for the rest of the world to see. And I think that that is very, very important for the music industry. Yeah, it seems that the whole music industry is really united on this one topic. There's a lot of things that, you know, people in the music industry might not agree with, but I think we all agree that having more Australian music on radio would make a huge difference and is hugely important. But why do you think commercial radio don't seem to be agreeing with us? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I mean, I guess that's a conversation you'd have to have with commercial radio. I, I don't really understand it. I think it's pretty obvious and 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 very um, clear that that the industry would only benefit from more Australian artists on radio. So I'm I'm really you know I'm not quite sure where they're coming from. Yeah, me neither. I <laughs> went to a panel at Big Sound last year yeah. where there was uh, one of the fellas who programs. I can't remember what station's called. It's kind of like the Triple M, but of Brisbane, and. I said to him, what's going on culturally within commercial radio where it seems to be not a priority or not kind of cool? And he really couldn't answer it either. Mm. I mean, Mm. you know, and there's been no evidence that increasing Australian music on radio has any effect on business at all. So Mm. you can't really blame it affects the advertisers or the shareholders because it doesn't. So... Yeah. yeah, and in terms of playing women on air, um, also they don't seem to really have an answer for that one either. No, I I mean, that just falls into another statistic again where women are not as represented across the board as they should be. Um, but, you know, and that's just something else we can add to the to the long list that we have. <laughs> <laughs> add to the long add list. Add to the long list. Speaking of that list, yeah. you know, I mean, we're saying that around 98% of all music recordings are made by men you know, in studios owned by men, engineered by men, most CEOs are men, radio airplay is male skewed, the people choosing the playlist for radio are men and only 10% of APRA's annual payout is going to female writers. So, yeah, I'm really not sure where anyone um, can get this idea that there is already a gender balance. It's kind of staggering that somebody can hear those stats and be so compartmentalised in their mind to still believe that there is gender balance because they hear some Beyonce on the radio <laughs> doesn't mean we're anywhere near a, a gender mm. balance. It's it's kind of mm. astounding. Um you know, what do you think we can do on an, on an individual level to try and make a difference? Because reading all those statistics sounds really depressing, <laughs> but, you know, we can make change and change is happening and it does happen. So, you know, what can we do as, as individuals in this scene? And, you know, and it's not just women's, women's work, you know, for, for all the listeners, regardless of your gender, there is something we can all do to try and make a difference. Well, in answer to your, your initial statement, you know, those that believe that we've reached equity. I mean, I, first of all, I'd be keen to see proof of where we have achieved gender gender parity um, because it just seems to be a, an absolute furphy. But I also think it, it is human nature to want, I think, this, the discrimination to be over. And it's human nature to get tired of hearing the same old story uh, stories about inequality. It's, it's human nature to get frustrated that it never changes. And we all want to say, hooray, that it, you know, hooray, it's done. 
but it's it's not, and that's why we need to keep looking at the statistics and updating the evidence and keep going. And as I keep saying, we we all need to respect the value of women's contribution to society and remain determined to ensure women's contributions are given agency to create business and to lead change and to influence culture. Um, you you raised something earlier just about um, the, I think it was the federal government. And, you know, Australian women received the vote in 1902. First Nations women had to wait until 1962 for the same right. Mm -hmm. And to this day, we've never achieved gender equality in our federal government. And just seven years ago in 2013, our federal minister for women was a man. So, you know, I, I think the Australian music industry really, after all, does reflect our greater society. And I think that, that this is a great example of how much work we have to do. But um, what I would say is I think the myth that I'd really like to bust uh, around women in music and around uh, inequality is, is to say that this is not about special treatment. I think it's very important that we say gender equity and cultural equity is not about special treatment. It is not about hating men. Some of Orma's biggest supporters are men. It's not about whining and victim mentality. It is about this. The Australian music industry will be better when women are empowered in all areas of the industry because men don't have a lock on innovative thinking, entrepreneurial ideas, bold vision, courageous distribution, or anything at all. The Australian music industry will be better when women have more power because half of the brains trust of this nation is women. We are going into a tough, challenging future, and it's time to stop benching half of the population. Give us a chance, and we may just have the kind of future that we all want to see in the Australian music industry. Brilliant answer, Vicky. This is so much work, you know, from an emotional labor point of view for women to be trying to maintain their personal relationships, have a career and be constantly being asked questions. What's it like to be a female drummer? What's it like to be a female producer? Oh, what it, what's it like being, you know, this is exhausting and you've is, done all this incredible work. It is exhausting. <laughs> it is exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> you know. It's exhausting. How do you look after yourself and how do you advise, you know, other women that really do want to make change and see change but are also exhausted by it? How can we look after ourselves so we don't burn out? It's a very good question. I mean, I, I think in terms of looking after ourselves, I have enormous faith in the possibility of creating change and not just for change's sake, but in the importance of creating a better world for women and girls, it's something I've been committed to my entire life and it's it's something I, I have to do. It's my life's work. I'm very clear about it. Um, but And I, I have a fantastic partner who is extremely supportive of the work that I do and a, you know, fantastic family when I get to see them. I think it's also, for me, really important. I, I focus a a lot when I'm in the warrior, what I call my warrior mode, on the on the big picture. But I also, when I'm not in that mode, try and focus on the beauty of the of the world. What it is that I love about being alive. What is it that I love about the Australian bush? What is it that I love about food and wine and 
the people that I love in my life. I mean, it's really important to keep a perspective on those smaller um, integral things that, that feed your spirit and your soul, whilst at the same time going out into the world to, to try and make a difference. I, I do genuinely believe that as individuals, we are all here to make a difference. We all have a mission in our lives. Some of us know that from a really early age, and, and some of us are still trying to find that out. But I knew what my mission was from the age of eight years old, and I've, I've just stuck to it my entire life. What a great conversation. Vicky Gordon in control. The Australian Women in Music Awards and Conference will be held in Brisbane this October 5th and 6th. Check out womeninmusicawards.com.au for more details. You've been listening to Control with Chelsea Wilson, a podcast about women in the music industry. For more episodes, please subscribe and make sure you follow the Control podcast on Instagram and check out controlpodcast.com for more info. This episode was recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nations, produced and edited by Chelsea Wilson. 